This is an ABC podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff across South Australia and Broken Hill into the far west of New South Wales. And a happy Friday to you. A bit of run of warmer weather at the moment. Um, I mean, more of you are able to get out onto your paddocks. Now, if you are out harvesting at the moment, uh, the uh, quail... Uh, interest, uh, the quails that, that fly, the, uh, the Sports Shooters Association and the Conservation Hunting Alliance of South Australia want you to pay attention to these quails. One or two paddocks would be great. It's just if we get a good number of people out there on their machines where they decide to count some quail in the paddock instead of being on their little uh, phones, being part of a um, citizen science project, it will give us some great information which we will use to uh, help manage quail and the, the hunting of quail. It's an interesting project. I don't know if I'd know if I saw quail uh, flashing up in front of me while I was driving along, but they're keen for you to keep an eye out while you're harvesting. So I'll have more on what they're trying to do there. And I'd be interested to know if you do notice these birds and other wildlife when you're uh, driving along, harvesting crops, whether you're, you're driving a chase bin or, or you're driving a header, uh, let me know if you if this is something that uh, you're keen to do, if you if you like to keep an eye out for animals like that. Text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 891. While we're talking about uh, harvest with this drier, warmer weather, a lot of headers are on the move, finally reaping in major parts of the state. Uh, wheat prices have been pretty consistent this year, but what they might do over the next couple of months uh, is a bit of a, a guessing game. We're talking uh, what could happen with feed or, or lower protein grain due to the wet weather. Rubber bank uh, agriculture analyst Dennis Vosnesensky explains perhaps some of the market projections they're looking at. Yeah, sure thing. So we've come off the highs that we saw, for example, earlier this year, so around June, May, where we saw track prices around the country go to $500 per ton. They've come down from that. Uh, they're around $450, $460. We, we saw them dip even below that, but then when all the rain started, this is APW, when all the rain started, those prices shot back up because everyone was concerned, okay, where do we get all of our milling wheat from? All these rains are causing all these significant downgrades uh, of wheat, which are higher grades, into feed. And as you mentioned, there is a lot of grade, grain going into the market that is feed wheat at the moment. What are those prices doing? So it's varied between around 60 to to $100 per tonne below APW. And how big that spread is will be determined by once all these rains stop on the East Coast, they're going to finally figure out once that grain moves to the bulk handling system how much of it is feed. And if it's more than expected, it wouldn't be a surprise to see that spread of $100 per tonne stick around for a while. Uh, if it's less than expected, then that spread will close down and APW will have no reason to stay as high uh, as we are at the moment. And then you take a further step back and you say, where are we with prices right now overall? And looking into the very near term, where could we be? Because this is harvest and farmers are making decisions. Well, Usually what happens is you harvest at different times on the East Coast and that grain gradually makes it makes its way into the bulk handling system. But because of all the significant rains, everyone had to stop harvest or wasn't able to start. And now if it finally stops raining on most of the East Coast, and we hope it does, but the challenge is going to be all that harvest is going to start at very similar times and all that grain is going to start making its way towards a slightly full bulk handling system from even last year. And in my mind, that means at least a cap on prices going higher. In most, in most likely, it's going to be possibly a slight depression in prices. When we're talking slight depression, can you give me sort of a, a ballpark figure? How much could it go down? 
Well, we're expecting high 300s to low 400s for APW1 uh, wheat. And if we look at, for example, feed barley, low to mid uh, 300s per ton. This is all track pricing. Well, this won't be on the West Coast, but there will be free in store, the, the, the equivalent. Um, and for sorghum, well, if you're comparing it to feed barley because it's all going to go into feed rations, probably around that same low to mid uh, 300s per ton. And is that influenced also by international factors? Can we talk about some of those? Uh, If we start with Ukraine, well, they just re-signed their export deal with Russia, so the grain corridor deal, to get grain safely from Ukrainian ports through the Bosphorus and then into the international markets where it's desperately needed by their customers. Now, that deal has been re-signed for 120 days. But what I always tend to mention to people is that, look, these two countries are actively fighting each other and all it takes is a missile to hit one of those grain vessels for that deal to fall apart. But when it comes to the Australian price, if that corridor does quickly close, we're looking at a a short jump in Aussie prices or in international prices. So if the Ukraine grain deal falls apart entirely, uh, of course, we could see a a jump up in pricing, you know, anywhere from 5 to 10 percent. But we have to keep in mind is that the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian grains industry has been investing significantly into rail infrastructure, into road infrastructure, into the Danube River port. So what they do is they have shallow water areas where they load barges with grain, they move the barges into open water and then load it onto a bigger ship, but in waters that belong to Romania or some other country. So Russia doesn't doesn't attack anything there. And those facilities have been increasing ever since the start of the war. So there's more and more ability to export it, even if the grain deal falls apart. So maybe 50, 60% in the coming months could be exported outside of the grain corridor anyway. If you're in the middle, a bit in the middle, you're not getting the prime hard that you might have been set to get before it rained at the wrong time, but you're also not getting feed wheat. You're somewhere in the middle and you've got a heap of on-farm storage and you're just putting it in there for the moment because you're unsure of what the market's going to be doing. I know you can't give advice, but do you think that it's worth hanging on to that or do you think it's worth trying to get rid of it? Is it worth people waiting until these bulk handling systems have a bit of time to move through all that quality and sort of get a bit of a better flow going on maybe sort of into next year? I can give you what our expectations are for price globally and locally, at least directionally, as opposed to saying what people should do. That would be fantastic. Uh, If we look at global, let's take corn as a representative of feed markets around the world. Uh, If we think about what might happen over the next 12 months to pricing, we are actually expecting prices to dip slightly, still remain significantly above the 10-year average, something like 40% above the 10-year average, but lower than they are now. And the reason we expect that is not because supply is necessarily improving, but because demand is starting to suffer because of the high prices. The feed demand, the biofuel demand for corn is actually starting to reduce because it's unsustainable to be running businesses that require that as a raw input when prices are so high. And as a result of that reduced demand, we expect prices to start easing moving into next year. Not not astronomically easing, but lower than they are now. Uh, then we go, okay, that, that's international. That is the price that theoretically we could get if we could export freely to the international market so there's no constraints at ports. Then we look at, okay, what's happening locally? Locally, we're going to be harvesting. There's going to be a lot of grain around. And likely, we're, we're likely to see easing at least during the harvest period, so from November to January, uh, maybe even to February in some places, likely easing from where we are now because eventually the whole East Coast will be harvesting and there's going to be a lot of grain around. Uh, When are the possible opportunities theoretically moving past that? Well, just before European 
and Black Sea and North America harvest starts around June, July, August, there's going to be a period where we have finished harvesting, we've exported a fair bit, and Northern Hemisphere harvest hasn't started yet. So April, May, uh, then maybe an opportunity for slightly higher prices. But I have to remind you that globally, there could be that easing in price. And then the Australian dollar, we're going to have to see what happens to that and what determines the Australian dollar. I don't want to go into too much detail, is how high we can raise interest rates compared to America. And right now, we're, we're quite constrained in how high we can do that. If we, if we can't raise interest rates as much as America's raising interest rates, our exchange rate will go down, which is good for pricing. If we can raise interest rates higher, then our exchange rate will go back up, which is not good for grain prices. Robert Bank Agriculture Analyst Dennis Fosnesensky speaking with uh, Alice Marshall there about some possibilities that might happen with the uh, grain pricing going forward as headers start to move across South Australian paddocks in earnest. It has been going for some time, but with this warmer weather, things are starting to ramp up. And when you're out on the header, how do you like to pass the time? Obviously, you have to pay attention, but there's harvest playlists and podcasts and things that you can do. But what about helping count quail? Well, the Sports Shooters Association of Australia and Conservation and Hunting Alliance of South Australia are looking for harvester drivers to help with the Citizen Science Project to record sightings of the bird. Wildlife biologist Matthew Godson explains to Eliza Berlage about the quail count. Well, quail, they're a very interesting species because they're not a endangered species and they're not a pest species. So they sort of get missed when it comes to research. And one group that actually have an interest in, in quail and the sustainability of quail populations are hunters. So the hunting community um, had decided um, back last year that we would... Um, put together a survey to try and gather information on the population size and and, um, location of of quail around South Australia, just to use this information to help the government um, decide on their declarations for a a quail hunting season. The first survey of of this kind that that you have helped conduct was last year and, and was led by hunters how many uh, people were involved with this last year and what did you learn? Well, we surveyed 124 private properties. So we, we had a, a, a fair number of harvesters that, uh, that joined in, in the count for us. So what, what we were able to do was find that uh, stubble quail were quite abundant and widespread across South Australia. Out of those 124 properties, that covered just under 12,000 hectares of, of um, farmland. And our counters counted 17,000 um, quail. So when we looked at the numbers and the, the area size uh, measured, we, we found that we had an average statewide density of about 1.28 quail per hectare. And when we look at that across um, the agricultural areas that we were looking at, we estimated that the population could range between 6 to 17 million. So with an average of just under 12 million birds. So that is quite a significant population. What are you hoping to find by um, yeah, putting a broader call out to people um, out harvesting to look for quail? First up, we want this survey to be um, as good as we can. And the more data, the better. So ideally, I'm trying to get at least three years of, of data 
So the more people that show an interest in joining and counting quail, the better. Um, now, we, we don't need uh, harvesters to count every paddock that they, they, um, they reap. Um, one or two paddocks would be great. It's just if we get a good number of people out there on their machines where they decide to count some quail in the paddock instead of being on their little uh, phones and playing around with Facebook, being part of a um, citizen science project it will give us some great information which we will use to uh, help manage quail and the, the hunting of quail. How could people get involved? Well, the easiest way would be to email me on wildlife at www.org.au and what I'll do is I'll send them a simple data form which just asks to jot down a few details which include the the paddock size, the amount of quail that they've counted, the crop type which is which is relevant so then we can find out which crops that uh, quail like to um, like to reside in and just some few other little details. So we're not asking for a whole lot of information, just a little bit of information which will help a, a worthwhile project. Any tips for people um, yeah, hoping to, hoping to help with spotting quail? The way that this works is that the harvesters will just count quail that are flushed in front of their machine and um, that, that's really all that we need you to do. Just keep an eye out in, in front and, and count quail as they flush and fly away from the harvester. You said there was previously a ban on quail hunting. Uh, it, the, the season was uh, open this year, uh, but there was previously a ban uh, in South Australia on hunting quail. Yeah, what did that mean for, for you and a lot of hunters? Uh, what was that period like? Well, there was two years where the minister didn't declare a season based on lack of, of data in regards to their abundance. So what what that meant was that um, people that were very interested in harvesting quail for two years couldn't do that, um, and that's what uh, made them uh, sit up and, and want to be part of a project to provide the government with the data that needed to show that quail hunting is sustainable. With a bit more water around many parts of South Australia this year, yeah, um, you know, how were numbers this um, this uh, open season? Well, based on our survey, quail were quite abundant and with the conditions that we've experienced this year, uh, we're expecting that they're going to have a, a very um, explosive breeding season because of the conditions out there for them to to feed and also waterfowl it's going to be it's going to be years of plenty with all this rain yeah it's good weather for ducks in in large parts of uh, the east coast and south australia as well although a bit of warm weather now that was quail research project coordinator matthew godson speaking with eliza burlage and if you want some more information on that you can contact the sporting shooters association of australia for, for some more details it's 20 past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next. We'll find out how long this warm weather will last. But in the meantime, the E.W. Evans Trust Fund that helps students from remote and regional areas undertake study has been rebooted in 2022. Now, this fund used to be administered by the now defunct South Australian Farmers Federation, so Primary Producers SA has taken over. The scholarship is worth up to $5,000. PPSA Chair Simon Maddox explains how the scholarship came to be. So the EW Stevens Trust was established in 1988 
following a bequest to the then United Farmers and Stock Owners of South Australia, and that fund management was subsequently transferred to the South Australian Farmers Federation. And then with uh, that, their demise, it ultimately ended up with Primary Producers SA. Uh, Mr Ernest William Stevens was a retired builder from the Flurio Peninsula. And in his will, he outlined that he wanted his bequeathment to be used to assist students in regional areas who wanted to further their education but were perhaps constrained from doing that due to financial circumstances. And so we're very pleased to have the opportunity to reinvigorate uh, opportunities for students to apply for support through the E.W. Stevens Trust and uh, applications have opened today and will remain open until uh, January the 12th. So it's open to any students from regional areas regardless of what they're studying? Yes, so obviously um, PPSA will want to give applicants from a farming background perhaps a, a higher weighting in the application process but you don't have to come off a farm to be able to apply or to be eligible you do have to be able to establish financial need. It's open to secondary or tertiary students from whose main address is in rural or regional South Australia um, and those undertaking a course through uh, an RTO or still at high school or wanting to go through university. It's an annual, a one-off annual grant, but it's possible for students to apply for additional assistance. Uh, that's not at all guaranteed. And the students can use this as a contribution towards school fees or books or other course materials, uniforms, board and accommodation if they're having to, you know, come to, come to the city to pursue what they want to do. They might need some IT equipment, or, you know, a laptop or something to help under undertake their study. Or there might be travel costs just to be able to let them get home from time to time during the year. These are all the sorts of things that are eligible for the grant to be used towards and part of the application process is for students to provide a statement of no more than 500 words outlining what they think their future career goals and aspirations are, their commitment to supporting rural and regional South Australia and to be clear about how they think they could use these funds to help them overcome the, the, the barriers that they're facing. And how much money can they access as part of the scholarship? So that the grants will be up to $5,000 a year. And how many recipients will there be? The, the fund isn't endless obviously um, so that based on how much particular students are seeking um, we'll support a, certainly at least one but we, we may have opportunity to support you know more than one depending upon the, the need and the opportunity available in any given year. SAF dissolved in 2012 why has it taken so long but almost 10 years for this to be reinvigorated? Look, it's been sitting there in the background. It just hasn't been pushed. Uh, when we inherited the opportunity, there had been some uh, attempts previously to try to focus the opportunities through the trust more specifically around uh, agricultural pursuits and education. Um, so there was some legal, legal discussions um, to see how that could be reframed. There was some support through the courts to adjust some elements of the trust um, and it's just been an opportunity now for us to finally clarify uh, how we can provide support, what we need to do to get a Board of Trustees reconvened and to really kick this back into uh, the, the environment so that students have an opportunity to be supported. Given you have a background in education, has this been a particular project of interest for you? Oh, look, absolutely. I have, as you know, I have a particular passion for anything we can do to help students pursue further study past secondary school. <clears throat> Uh, be that for you know vocational training or pursuing higher education, 
Um, I just think everybody needs to have that opportunity and if there are barriers to people pursuing those uh, engagements, then we need to do everything we can to support them. Applications open today and they close January 12. When will students know if they've been successful? Uh, we will be uh, hoping to notify applicants of their success or otherwise by early February. So once applications close, we will be ready and waiting to uh, process the applications and uh, get some decisions made as quickly as possible. PPSA Chair Simon Maddox there. And there's some more details on the entry requirements for the E.W. Stevens Trust on the Primary Producers SA website. Now, uh, we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now to see how long this bit of warm weather will last for. I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvath. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So what's in store? It looks like today's probably the warmest of the days. Yeah, that's right. Tomorrow, depending on where you are in the state, we'll start off warm and dry, but we do have this change that's over WA at the moment that is starting to move across. So at the moment, South Australia is looking relatively cloud-free. There's little bits here and there, but mostly cloud-free and those warmer temperatures around for today. But we do have this trough coming across from Western Australia. It's quite active on their side of the border, and we will start to see some showers and thunderstorms developing on our side as we head into the later part of the afternoon and evening and that's followed by this cooler southwesterly change so initially for more central and eastern districts starting off dry and um, and warm but then we've got this change coming across so it's going to move more broadly across the state on Saturday with showers and possible storms pretty much throughout by the end of the day we will be watching these um, storms coming across. They could get a bit gusty at times. Probably more likely for that to be across the pastoral districts, maybe the Flinders districts as well. But um, with thunderstorms, they can be a bit gusty at times, so it is a bit of a watch this space. But overall, this system's not looking as vigorous as some of the ones that we have seen as well. And I should mention, um, with those warmer northerly winds today, we do actually have a fire weather warning out for Eastern Air Peninsula and the CFS have imposed a total fire ban in corresponding in that same area for today and ahead of that system again we will like I said we'll have that dry and northerly airstream so potentially some elevated fire dangers as well tomorrow to start with so watch this space for this afternoon for some of those districts as well ahead of that change moving through and yeah we're just ahead of that some of those northerly winds could get a little bit gusty at times but like I said we're probably not looking at them being as severe as we have seen perhaps on previous changes moving through. Those showers and thunderstorms will then contract to the north of the state on Sunday and contract to the northeast by the end of the day and clear away. Following the change we're going to be in a cooler southerly airstream in the south. Another little trough pushing up just enhancing those showers across the agricultural area and the western coasts on Sunday remaining in that cooler southerly airstream as we head into Monday as well there so still the chance to see some isolated shower activity around the agricultural area and western coast but as the day progresses we are looking at those showers easing and contracting to southern coast not too much of the shower activity left um, on Tuesday maybe a little bit around our southern coast but that should be clearing up relatively quickly on the Tuesday there. We've got our high pressure system starting to come across from WA so keeping things relatively stable as we head towards the end of the week and again we are looking at some dry conditions to see through sort of Wednesday, Thursday and Friday as that high moves across we'll start to see those winds shifting a bit more northerly by the end of the week so those temperatures coming back on the rise so after a bit of a cool start some warmth coming back towards the end of the week Cassie. Just having a look at some of the rainfall totals that we can expect with this system coming through with most of it falling over the 
weekend. By the end of Tuesday, we are generally looking at rainfall totals across the state, broadly between sort of 1 to 10 millimetres. And with that nature of thunderstorms, could see a little bit more with that. So possibly some falls of 10 to 30 millimetres possible with those thunderstorms. And those heavier falls probably more likely across the pastoral from Flinders districts and maybe out in the far west as that system comes across Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Jenny Horvat there with the weather and uh, she highlighted the total fire ban in some parts of the state as well. So do heed those warnings. In the far west of New South Wales, there is uh, a sunny day in store tomorrow for the upper west and there could be a thunderstorm though around in the far west at night. Winds are getting up a little bit through the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 15 and 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 33 to 38 degrees, so rather warm. The lower western will be mostly cloudy. There's a slight chance of a shower near the South Australian border in the late afternoon and evening. Not much chance of rain anywhere else. Maybe a thunderstorm, though. Winds picking up through the late afternoon, overnight getting down to 12 to 18, but the daytime temperatures reaching the low to high 30s. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill... This is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company today. Now, have you ever grown a plant that you thought should be one thing, but turns out it's another? Often it's, it's just annoying or uh, perhaps a bit interesting to see what you've come across. But when you're growing poppies, things get a little more serious. The oriental poppy was actually, in fact, a poppy, a different poppy. And it's one of the restricted ones as well. So that's been removed too. So it wasn't Oriental? It wasn't an Oriental, no, but sold as an Oriental. And it had some pretty serious consequences for this flower farmer. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her story. And I'd be interested to know if you ever had something pop up in your garden that perhaps you thought was pretty, but turns out it was uh, perhaps a restricted plant. I know that tomato plants can sometimes look like other plants, things like that. Or perhaps you bought a, a plant thinking it was one thing and it turned out to be another thing let me know text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one also it's been almost a year since the upper air peninsula town of kimber was battered by floods there were uh, scenes of horror there big rivets and, and um, gashes through the the landscape there but they're harvesting now so i'll uh, update you on how the region has recovered from those storms but first we have to find out what's making news with matt coleman hello matt hello cassie in the news this afternoon the former south australian liberal party president john malcolm west has walked from court after being granted home detention bail and he'll be declared unfit to stand trial. The 74-year-old had fled the country more than three decades ago as he was due to stand trial on 27 counts of fraud over the alleged misappropriation of almost $90,000 in 1988. Mr West was arrested in March this year when he returned to Australia. Authorities were tipped off when his daughter applied for Medicare on his behalf. Thousands of Year 12s are making their way to Victor Harbour to begin celebrating the end of their secondary studies. Encounter Youth's green teams will be on the ground to support young people over the three-day event and police will be looking out for poor behaviour. And about 10,000 people are expected to take part in the week-long Australian Masters Games taking place in Adelaide next October. The first wave of entries have opened for sports such as netball, basketball, tennis and football. There'll be more than 50 sports played. More news at 1 o'clock.
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman, and your news headlines coming up at one o'clock. Now, a new case of Varroa, this time in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales, is raising big questions about the origin of the outbreak in Australia. Now, Varroa mites are the most serious pest to bees worldwide. Australia is the only major honey-producing country that is mostly free of it, but you may be aware that there was, uh, there have been some detections in New South Wales and there are some restrictions and lockdowns to hopefully prevent that from spreading. But this is a bit of an interesting development. The hive was infested by mites when bees were moved before the outbreak was discovered in the port of Newcastle. David Clawton reports. Varroa is a devastating pest that can decimate hives and reduce honey production significantly. Genomic testing shows that the mites originated in Central America, but it's not clear how they got into Australia. This latest case has proven that the port of Newcastle probably wasn't the point of entry. The Department of Primary Industries Incident Controller, Lloyd King, told Dan Cox and Jenny Bates on ABC Newcastle about this latest case. We're still trying to determine exactly what's occurred. Uh, But we believe that, um, like this person has a close relationship with a a previously known infested premises. Um, Now that we've actually gone out there and and tested that person's hives again and they've turned up to be infested, we've, we've found out there are actually hives that were moved from that known infested premises in the last eight or nine months that we didn't previously know about. So does that mean that there was Varroa at that first property before the detection at the port of Newcastle? Oh, oh yes. Um, so we are, our sentinel hives in Newcastle in late June uh, detected the incursion. Um, we've since been swimming upstream to try and work out where that incursion originated. So we, we know that the first place that we found it was in the port of Newcastle. We're still pulling together how it got to that site where we first found it and then from where it's came. So the, right. the more surveillance we do in the purple zone and the, the more information we've gathered from the red zone through interviewing people gives us a very firm idea that that definitely wasn't the point of entry. Um, yeah, so ongoing surveillance will actually fill in the picture for us. Right. That has changed my impression of this whole situation, um, that we are, we now know that before the 22nd of June there was Varroa in the Hunter before it was identified at the port of Newcastle on the 22nd of June. So do we know where it came from yet or is it likely to have come from interstate or how does this happen? Um, well, we know it's not likely to have come from interstate because all of our, our other state uh, partners have also been doing a lot of surveillance as well. So we, we know that it somehow got into the you know, the, the, the lower hunter sometime in the last nine months. Um, and we, we actually have a genetic sequence of the mite that tells us that it originated from somewhere around Central America because this thing originally came from sort of Japan, Korea, that part of the world. But, uh, yeah, we still haven't pieced together exactly what the date was of the entry. But the more surveillance we do and the more cooperation we get from the bee industry, the more confident we are that we've actually got the thing contained and we're well on the way to eradicating New South Wales Apiarist Association President Steve Fuller told Kim Honan this is a worrying case, but he hasn't given up on eradicating the pests from Australia. At least we know it's a, it's a traceable link, which is, which is good. The sad part, though, is this has already been surveillanced already with alcohol washers, and now it's actually showing up positive to varroa mites. So 
you is it makes me wonder, or it makes the industry really scared of how many other ones out there with alcohol washers that have been cleaned that now need to go back through and have motorcycle strips in them. Yeah, how concerning is that for the industry? That's really concerning. The only thing that could be in our favour is we have the purple zone, which is a surveillance, so you're not allowed to bring them into the blue zone. So we do find it in the purple zone, which my understanding is this was in a purple zone, then we've got a chance of keeping it contained. What does this mean for the varroa mite response? Is it time to stop controlling this parasite and let it become endemic? Uh, at this point in time, I, I think it's still a bit too early to move to management, but it's going to make them rethink the whole, thing, whole system. The state's Agriculture Minister, Dougald Saunders, told Michael Condon the government is extending the red zone for controlling the outbreak and more bees will have to be euthanised. But it's not bees that are flying between right. hives necessarily. It's normally that people have moved to hive and it may not show up straight away as being infected, but that's why we have to keep doing that testing. And, and you know, that's why in some of the areas that will, um, that will come back, it'll take a couple of years because we need to keep retesting and making sure that nothing has slipped through the net. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, not unexpected given it is linked uh, to movements from an original, uh, original infected premises that now means that there's an extended red zone around that particular area, which will incorporate some, some more beekeepers that will now have to have hives euthanised. What it does show is that the surveillance that we're doing works, the, the sticky mats we're using, the alcohol washes we're doing, um, it's not a significant infestation at this particular site. It's a, it's a small one, but it just does show we need to keep doing what we have been doing. It is a bit of a concern. They're still trying to get on top of this varroa mite issue in New South Wales. It's certainly something that needs to be eradicated given the consequences that it can have for bees around the world and hopefully will be uh, avoided in Australia. But that was Dougald Saunders speaking with David Clawton, ending that report from David Clawton that was pulled together with some uh, work from Newcastle as well. Now, you might remember almost a year ago, the Upper Air Peninsula town of Kimber was battered by floods and up to 300 millimetres of rain in two days. Now, these floods washed away soils and damaged roads, but now farmers are reaping the benefits, as Lucas Forbes reports. For Kimber farmer Brad Wolford, there's nothing better than getting on the header. Oh, well, this is, this is my favourite time of the year. Um, I love sitting on a header and... I mean, I, yeah, I yeah, try to get the header out of the shed as soon as I can, probably a couple of months too early, actually. But, uh, yeah, I just love everything about harvest, and it's, uh, yeah, this is my happy place sitting here. His family's property was one of many that was inundated earlier this year. Yeah, my phone was uh, constantly ringing for a few hours there, and then uh, seeing all the videos of the damage and everything we had out the back was, uh, yeah, unbelievable. When you came back and you saw the, what the floods had done... I mean, I suppose, were you concerned about where this season would be going? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We've, well, we had 20 k's of fencing and stuff to, to sort out first and all our sheep uh, became locked in the one paddock. So, I mean, the, the season was uh, the uh, last thing on my mind, really. We sort of had a few things we had to get sorted out straight away. So, um, But always, always at the back of your mind, it sort of knew it was going to set us up for a reasonable season. Brad works alongside his uncle, Peter, who says this year is one for the history books for Kimber. Well, the prices are terrific. Um, you know, obviously, like all grain growers, you want to see them go higher. But um, 
I guess on average around this district, it's probably around 60 million a year that would come into the community from grain production. Um, and that was done through PERSA. They did a study on all those sort of things. But this year, I think it could be, you know, doubled, uh, double it at least because of the value of the, the grain. And, of course, the yields are terrific. It's probably the best season the district's going to have. Kimber farmer Peter Wolford speaking. Even almost a year on, there's still signs of damage. On farmer Paul Schaefer's property, a new lake, affectionately known as Lake Melaleuca, formed overnight, which still exists to this day. This is Lake Melaleuca, on the property called Melaleuca. Um, yeah, it filled up in the, in the January floods from the rain elsewhere in the district and flowed about 30 k's to get here. You have got this large lake in your property. I guess it's not a croppable area, but... Have you been having some fun with it at least? Yeah, we had plenty of fun over summer. We had the had the boat out and the jet skis and yeah, a bit of water skiing and kneeboarding and kids on the tubes and yeah, hell of a hell of a, hell of a good time. Obviously, Kimber is an area that that really relies on agriculture. So, based on your experience as a long time local and as a farmer, how important are years like this to the local economy? Oh, extremely important. Yeah, they they can put set businesses up for the future. You know, that gives them the chance to consolidate debt or invest in infrastructure projects things like that it, it really get things really get things happening i think kimber farmer paul schaefer while the storm washed away agricultural soil it also damaged council roads district council of kimber ceo deb larwood said while most roads are open there's a lot of work to do we had at one point up to about 70 odd roads closed um, at any one time which obviously impacted the ability for all our residents to move freely around around the district. There was also some of the more major roads like the air highway was closed as well. We have got four still closed so and, and look they still have significant water on them so we anticipate some of the roads will be closed until March, April next year. If you have a good year on the farms then traditionally that equates to also a good year in the town. Um, obviously if, if farmers have had a good year they've got the capacity to, to spend more money, whether it be farming equipment or anything like that, but also, you know, in the in the stores, the supermarkets, the hotel, the butcher, all of those sort of things. So it's hoped that this should bring a bit of an economic injection to the community. District Council of Kimber CEO Deb Larwood. Michelle Rayner is a farmer who also runs a local cafe. She says regardless of the economic impact, the good harvest has lifted spirits across the district. Oh everyone there's a real buzz about the town. Um, morale's quite high and just, yeah, hoping that everything goes to plan. I suppose, like, given that you've been here a while, what effect have you seen when years haven't been so good as well? Uh, everybody just cuts, cuts back. Um, I guess you can only come out for coffee so many times a week as it is, so, yeah, they just sort of cut back a little bit and, yeah, tighten the belt. Kimber Farmer and Eileen's owner, Michelle Rayner, ending that report by Lucas Forbes. And given how damaging those floods were to the landscape, it's amazing to hear how well the region has bounced back. This country does respond when it gets rain, although a lot of areas are perhaps uh, not wanting to see quite as much at the moment. This uh, It's amazing how much this country swings from uh, droughts to, to flooding rains, but it's uh, something that uh, we've long adapted to in this country and I'm sure will continue to as we uh, approach uh, a quarter to one here on the program. We'll find out what is happening on Landline this week.
This week on Landline, farming off the grid. We use roughly about 17,000 kilowatts uh, of energy a year, uh, which equates to you know, four and a half, $5,000 know, electricity cost that we save every year. And celebrating the work of country creators. I think it's about making something and sharing it with other people and it brings people together. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. A Hobart flower grower has landed in a little hot water, unknowingly growing a plant restricted for local florists. The local state authorities contacted her after apparently seeing some photos of the pink blooms on Instagram. They turned up at her property the next day and confiscated the lot, taking them from her flower patch. Now, I've Interested to know if you've ever, maybe not uh, had authorities come and pull up your plants, but perhaps you've grown something that you thought was going to be one thing and it turned out to be another thing, or, or, or perhaps you did accidentally grow a restricted plant. I'd be interested to know your story because this is quite an interesting one. You can text me on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I can't think. Um, I think I did try to to grow uh, some spinach that turned out to be something else because it wasn't spinach, but it said it was spinach. So that's what I thought it was. But I never actually found out what it was. But Fiona Breen actually went out and visited Kate Dixon, the flower grower, to chat about this surprising turn of events. So I had some really beautiful poppies, nice and tall, pink, frilly, gorgeous flower heads. And I had an unexpected call from Depeewee last week saying that they'd seen some of my photos on Instagram and thought and suspected that they were restricted poppies, um, that you need a license to grow in Tasmania. So yeah, that was a bit of shock because I had no idea. (laughs) What a surprise. So obviously you hadn't intended to plant those sort of poppies. No, I didn't. So I was growing them purely for the wedding events um, and I had absolutely no idea. They were seeds that I sourced, um, you know, from an Australian seed supplier. So I had, I thought that they were okay. Um, I guess it's probably a really good reminder before you plant anything to always check and check with the botanical names. How can you check? Well, that's a good question because after I got the initial um, contact from Depeewee, I did have a look on their website and I couldn't find the information easily. But they do have, pertaining to poppies specifically, a, a Know Your Poppies fact sheet, um, which has some pictures on it. But again, I think it could make, be made a little bit easier to find. Were you surprised that uh, you managed to buy these poppies? I mean, was there any su- suggestion that the seeds should be restricted? No, none. And the, I did have another variety of poppy growing here, which the seed packet's botanical name was Poppy Oriental. Uh, and they are okay to grow. But when the guys from Depeewee came last week and took some plant samples to UTAS for testing to confirm exactly what they were, the oriental poppy was actually, in fact, a poppy, a different poppy, and it's one of the restricted ones as well. So that's been removed too. So it wasn't oriental? It wasn't an oriental, no, but sold as an oriental. Oh, my goodness. Do you think uh, others may have fallen into this trap? Yes, I do actually. I think, um, well, I've seen a lot of these poppies in backyards and they're a cottage garden favourite. 
So yeah, I think there's probably quite a few around. Were you surprised, one, that you got the call and two, that they came around and pulled them out? Uh, I was surprised um, because I actually had no idea that poppies or certain poppies were restricted. Yeah, I mean, I was very surprised and that they did move very swiftly. But given what I know now and how, you know, I've spoken with Dapiwi and they've talked uh, to me about why they're restricted and the dangers involved in ingesting these type of poppies, I think it's a very good thing that they did do that. Okay, so these were poppies that are used by the poppy industry to produce thebane and opium Correct. for the drug in- industry. It, exactly. That's exactly right. So it's a very, very tightly held restricted crop. And yeah, I mean, I guess in the wrong hands with the wrong intention, that'd be really dangerous. So how do you feel after all this? Well, I'm really relieved it happened now and not next year because I was planning on doing another two rows. So I'm glad it saved me from all that work to have it ripped out. (laughs) Do you think there's an issue here about education or perhaps about being able to buy these seeds? Yeah, I do. I think, look, I think when people are educated, then then they probably wouldn't be looking to grow these sort of poppies. But I also think there is a natural assumption. I made this assumption that if the seeds are available in stores, readily available, easy to buy, then people just naturally assume that it's okay to grow them. Um, so I think probably what really needs to happen is that seeds, poppy seeds in particular, need maybe some random screening and random testing to actually see that what is in the packet what's, is actually what's labelled. At the store? Correct, yeah. What's going to happen with you now? You've had the poppies taken, is that it? I hope that's it. Um, the lovely guys yesterday who came to take the poppies said that I'll be getting a formal letter notifying me of the testing results and I'm hoping that that's all that's the, that, that is contained in the letter. I hope there's no fines or anything, but, yeah, I hope that that's it. <laughs> Kate Dixon, a flower grower on the outskirts of Hobart, speaking with Fiona Breen about the poppies that she'd been selling to florists. Turns out they were a little more illicit than I think she thought they were, just thought they were pretty, which uh, if you go onto the abc.net.au slash rural website, you can actually see those flowers. They are a pretty shade of pink. Now, uh, George from Marston, he, he had a, perhaps a more productive, uh, interesting plant that, that turned up at his place. Uh, he takes in to say a, a seed germinated in an area where he had uh, some cold composted kitchen scraps and it started growing. It looked a bit more like a pumpkin or a rock melon seedling than a weed. So he let it grow and it grew and it grew and had no idea what it could be as the 14 melons it produced were so big. One of the larger melons could have weighed 10 kilograms, this text says. They were incredibly healthy, hardy and disease resistant, easy to grow. And after trawling the internet, uh, George says that he found out that it was a cucurbit known as a winter melon. Well, that's a, a lovely surprise, it sounds like, just uh, from your kitchen scraps. I'm sure you're not the first person to have kitchen scraps uh, yield something other than compost, but uh, a great find there. Thanks for texting in, George. Also, uh, a call from Mal from Malala called in with a story from Kangaroo Island about a 90-year-old woman who supposedly lived next door to a police station. She'd always had a, a beautiful, colourful garden and... Uh, Probably was none the wiser until a police officer who used to be a detective moved there and told her that she'd need to pull all her plants out as they were prohibited. Uh, It's um, 
amazing there. Now, uh, Phil from Woodside has also texted and said that I, along with thousands of other South Australian gardeners, have grown this puppy here. As far as I know, it's legal in South Australia. There you go. So maybe it's not quite as, as dangerous as was suggested there. But yeah, this lady, uh, Kate Dixon, did have her plants ripped up. You can read more about that story, as I said, at abc.net.au slash rural. Finally today... Barnes Seafood, uh, based at Port Broughton on the York Peninsula, has been awarded the Sydney Fish Market's Environmental Grant. The grant, which has been awarded since 2025, is about encouraging businesses to explore new environmental practices. Angela Barnes from Barnes Seafood says the grant money will allow her to research more sustainable products for their company. Uh, We were using plastic liners in the packaging process for our cooked crabs, Um, so we just thought we'd look into a more sustainable option. Uh, We've already got the wheels in motion with a South Australian company uh, with a more generic branded biodegradable fish bin liner, and once it's all finalised, we'll also encourage others in the industry to look at using these bio liners in their packaging processes. Barnes Seafood has been trialling biodegradable packaging since early last year. Currently, they're importing these products from China, but this grant will now allow them to explore sustainable packaging options locally. Mrs Barnes explains why she decided to apply for the environmental grant originally. It just really fit with what I was currently doing. Um, I've spent over 12 to 18 months researching these liners and received uh, quite, a, quite a large quote from that first company. And, yeah, I just want to really continue finding the best option so that I can promote it to others in the industry so the product is already there I can point them in the right direction and they can purchase it to use in their business. And currently what are the guidelines in place around sustainable fishing for farmers and producers? Uh, So the crab fishery is a quoted fishery Uh, each license holder has has a total allowable catch each year that can't be exceeded. Um, Each year we conduct surveys with SARDI they're on the board the vessels during these surveys and all the data from those surveys are used to ensure the crab fishery remains sustainable. CEO of Sydney Fish Markets, Greg Dyer, says their mission is about sustainable growth for the Australian seafood industry. The Sydney Fish Markets is currently in the process of relocating and rebranding and part of this is ensuring a steady and sustainable seafood supply for future generations. He shares the importance of the grant. Sustainability, environmental responsibility and so forth are really fundamental to who we are and what we do as a business. We like to promote that into the industry and and reward those who are undertaking activities which are aligned with those principles and and our own culture, if you like. So um, in line with those principles, we we have this annual um, award program um, where we seek to support, encourage and reward those who um, are undertaking activities which go to that environmental sustainability. And in our current climate, what are some of the concerns you feel about sustainability in the fishing industry? Um, well, more broadly, I do want to say this. We are amongst the best managed fisheries in the world. So globally, um, our regulatory environments, the, the quota systems that we have, um, the fishing methods that we adopt and so forth are, um, in my view, uh, as good as anywhere in the world. In terms of issues at the moment, um, we see country of label, uh, country of origin labelling rather as being a really important initiative that we've been lobbying for for some years. In the environment space, um, uh, I guess um, the use of uh, single-use plastics for uh, for liners within 
containers. It's a really gnarly problem for the industry because of the you know, the very physical nature of the product and the way in which it needs to be transported via aeroplane, right? So you can't have leaky old tubs uh, swashing around the bottom of, a, of an aeroplane. So there are some real physical constraints that need to be overcome. And do we know any of those figures around the environmental impact on plastics from the fishing industry? Um, look, in the grander scheme of things, um, you know, um, the, the uh, seafood industry's use of plastics is relatively minimal, but to us it's an important contribution that the industry needs to make over time. But we see that we need to be playing our part, and as I say, it's part of that social licence um, that, uh, that we enjoy with our consumers that we maintain and do whatever we possibly can to, to, uh, to maintain that reputation. Speaking of that, how important is it to have a positive social licence for the fishing industry? Look, I think it's absolutely fundamental and and I think um, oftentimes there are um, some broad-based statements that are made about the fishing industry globally which just don't relate to the Australian fishing industry. Um, We are uh, one of the best regulated, managed uh, fisheries in the world. Social licence is important and the consumer wants to know where did this product come from, was it managed um, and fished sustainably? Am I um, in consuming this product acting responsibly? Um, And are the people who are producing it uh, doing likewise? CEO of the Sydney Fish Markets, Greg Dyer, ending that report from Demetria Panagiotaris there. So congratulations. Sounds like they're doing some great work. Before I let you go and let you know what Caroline Winter has coming up this afternoon, you might be interested to hear that a Victorian Highland cattle breeder has sold a 14-month-old heifer for a world breed record price of $67,500. Now, you might know Highland cows. They're quite small. They've got the, the really shaggy hair and the, the horns. I think they look like little monsters. They're very cute. Glenn Hasty has been breeding Highlands in Gisborne in, for 26 years and has never seen such demand for the rustic Scottish breed. The jaw-dropping price even had people talking about it in their home country of Scotland because it doubled the previous breed record. So that must be one pretty fantastic Highland coup there. But uh, just to get a bit of a sneak peek as to what's coming up this afternoon on your local radio, Cara Winters here. Good afternoon. Hi, Cass. I'd love one of those. Could you have one They're as so a pet? Cute. Yeah, they are very cute. They're well, so gorgeous. They might need a bit more space than your regular garden. Quite, but, um... quite possibly. Replace <laughs> the dog. Uh, so coming up this afternoon, we've got a lot of fun. It's Friday. The blue uh, sun is out. The sky is blue. So we want to find out what your mood song is and we'll play some of those throughout the show. And today is Friday, so we're bringing it back. So every week... We have a campaign to bring something back. And this week, it's the drive-in. So we have a listener who suggests it on a Monday and we create a campaign by Friday to do just that. So love to hear your memories of what it was like when you went to the drive-in. I'd love to know, did someone get a proposal or something special, a special moment at the drive-in? Do you remember that we as do, a kid? We do have this. I've never been to one, but I do think that it would be really fun. But, yeah, I wonder whether um, there is enough nostalgia to bring it back. Be interesting to see. Yes, indeed. That's coming up this afternoon on your local radio as we approach 1 o'clock. Afternoons with Caroline Winter. I had the Steve Austin doll. Yeah. Did it make the... Who of this era did not run around in slow motion doing that? Exactly. Caroline Winter, ABC Radio South Australia and Broken. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.